2007, November 9th. Today is Lecture 35, The Deserts of Mars. All right. So we need one more terrestrial planet to round out the set, and what better one to end up with is the outermost of the terrestrial planets, Mars. Mars is the desert planet, and it's going to prove to be one of the most interesting planets of all that we've studied. In fact, Mars is the subject of a very intensive set of studies going on from spacecraft being sent by the United States now, and Europe has been joining the game. And we're starting to learn a great deal about this, this nearby neighbor in space. The key ideas today is that Mars, of course, is the fourth planet from the Sun. It's about half the size of the Earth, and it has two small asteroid-like moons, Phobos and Deimos, fear and panic. The atmosphere is very different from the atmospheres we've seen so far. The only two atmospheres we've experienced are the, the relatively light, warm, moist nitrogen-oxygen atmosphere of the Earth and the hot, heavy carbon dioxide atmosphere of Venus. This is going to be a thin, again bone-dry, carbon dioxide atmosphere. We'll have something to say about why that is. The surface turns out to be, again, bone-dry as near as we can tell, but not quite. There's some interesting stuff there. We'll see that there are cratered highlands and low-lying plains, much more heavily cratered surface than either Venus or the Earth. There are polar caps of carbon dioxide as well as water, water ice. So there's dry ice actually evaporated out onto, or frozen out onto the poles. Numerous extinct volcanoes, including some of the largest volcano complexes in the entire solar system, although all of them are extinct. And finally, there are deep canyons and flow channels. These latter are the sign of very rapid water flows in Mars's distant past. And as we'll see towards the end of the lecture, a tremendous amount of evidence has been gathering over the last couple of years, thanks to robotic Mars probes, which have actually been working, working the surface of Mars, have begun to find positive evidence of at least past presence of water on Mars. And we're now getting a series of missions are starting up to look for actual presence of water in the present day, perhaps frozen or semi-liquid below the subsoil. So let's start out with Mars at a glance. That didn't quite work. The orbital data is 1.5 astronomical units away from the sun, so it puts it at the outermost edge of the terrestrial planet zone. The period at this distance is about 1.88 years. The eccentricity of Mars is about 0.0934. That's the reason why Mars was so pivotal in the discovery of the motion of the planets, because it's just elliptical enough to be able to clue in Kepler using Tycho's data that it actually was, and the orbits were ellipses with the sun at one focus, not circles. In fact, if all we had to work with was Jupiter or Venus, which are the other two brightest planets, those have nearly circular orbits, and you never would have been clued in to Kepler's third law, Kepler's, Kepler's laws at all. The orbit is tilted by not very much. It's only about 1.85 degrees up out of the ecliptic. So again, it lies down just like the others in the plane of the ecliptic. And it doesn't want to show me the planetary data. That's unfortunate. Oh, well. This slide pretty much illustrates the main point of the planetary data. Mars is about half the size of the Earth in radius. It's about 0.53 Earth radii, or a little, un little over 10% the mass of the Earth. So by volume, Mars is about where we would expect it to be. If you think about that in terms, it's a little bit, little bit higher density, lower density. Oh, gosh, I can't do that number in my head. Never mind. Um, some days I just can't do the math. But Mars is a lot smaller than the Earth, and this very nice side-by-side-to-scale picture shows the differences. It also serves to illustrate very nicely the phenomenal differences in the atmospheres and in the surface features of the Earth. The Earth is a warm, moist world. It's mostly water with a bit of dry land. 
very active weather, very pretty thick atmosphere of nitrogen and oxygen, and lots and lots of water everywhere. Mars, by contrast, is a dry desert world, a very, very thin, very cold atmosphere. Um, we'll see in a moment some of the basic details of the atmosphere, but bone dry on the surface. There's no liquid water to be seen, and it doesn't come through as clearly here, but there actually are clouds in this picture, but they're so thin you can barely see them as a slight light discoloring underneath my laser pointer up here. Mars only occasionally has weather that's actually spectacular, as we'll see in a minute, but there is weather nonetheless. There's enough of an atmosphere here to support weather. Now, our best view of Mars for a long time through telescopes looks something like this black and white photograph taken in the, probably the early portion of the 20th century. This is a picture of the front-facing hemisphere of Mars that we, was taken on this particular day. This is 1938, I believe, was when this photograph was taken. It was taken through some of the best telescopic observations possible at that day. We can, of course, have better technology now. And it shows the basic features that were visible to Mars through telescopes pretty much up from about two or three hundred years or so ago forward. Mars was clearly had a non-uniform appearance. There were dark regions and light regions. It had polar caps. Here is the north polar cap up here, rather small. The southern polar cap is away from us here. Mars, as you may recall from the lecture a few days ago, is tilted by 24 degrees on its axis. This particular picture was taken during northern summer on Mars. So the polar cap has receded and melted away a bit. The equator runs kind of here, and the South Pole is in darkness, probably the largest extent of the South Polar region at that time. What people noticed as they watched Mars over time is that it rotated once every 24 hours in round numbers, and that over the various seasons through the Martian year of 1.88 Earth years, these polar caps would grow and recede as you went through winter and summer. So very clearly, there was active weather on the surface of Mars. Occasionally, they would even see these dark and light areas change seasonally as well. Sometimes you wouldn't see very much dark regions. Sometimes you would see a lot of dark regions. That immediately got people in mind that these dark regions were possibly vegetation. And you were seeing the rapid growth in the spring and the dieback in the fall of vegetation on the surface of Mars. Furthermore, the appearance of these polar caps up here suggested the presence of liquid water. The Earth's polar caps advance and recede slightly during the summer and winter. For example, this last summer, the Arctic ice cap receded actually the greatest amount that's ever been seen in human history. Really, certainly many hundreds of years has been observed by, well, I should say people from Europe. Probably the Inuit have it going way, way back. But they recede in the winter and now is uh, summer, and as winter is coming on, the Arctic ice cap is growing back out. And so people thought, by analogy, Mars had a water-driven weather. This view of Mars was actually as, as a possible harbor of life, as a place where there was Earth-like weather, and, and even Earth-like, if somewhat colder conditions, was somewhat abetted by a rather curious phenomenon that occurred during the late 19th century. There were two astronomers, Giovanni Schiaparelli, who was one of the people who mapped out and named a lot of these dark features because they were repetitive. They may have been land features of some kind. And Percival Lowell, a, um, a gentleman who was part of the famous Lowell family of Boston, who, in order to get away from his, sort of his, his bad, bad health problems, moved out to Flagstaff, Arizona, and built himself, with his family's considerable wealth, his own private observatory. And he began intensive observations of Mars. This picture I show over here on the right is one of Percival Lowell's maps of this same region here. So you can see these patterning of dark regions. This is called Sirtis Major by Schiaparelli's um, nomenclature. Here's the so-called Elas Basin. And 
Rather fancifully, a series of lines have been drawn here, the so-called canals of Mars. Schiaparelli was the first person who, in Italian, used the word canale, and it was Lowell who really carried it on to its, to its final, really ultimate form. He saw Mars as basically inhabited by intelligent beings who were on a dying desert world. This vast system of canals was being used to bring water down from the northern poles in to try to irrigate their dying deserts. And the black and white features that you saw were the coming and going of the seasons. Well, this is actually what Mars really does look like. When spacecraft went, it's a dead desert world for the most part. It's heavily cratered. That was actually a surprise to some people, but in retrospect, it shouldn't have been too surprising because the atmosphere is really thin. It's got a very ancient surface. These dark regions are just that. They're dark. This is, by the way, the Hellas Basin. For whatever reason, I didn't notice until this morning when I put this lecture together just before class that this picture has been flipped relative to the hemisphere I just showed you from those other two pictures. But this is the same place. You just got to flip it left to right a little bit in your head. Heavily cratered deserts, highlands, and plains. Here's the, here's the part of the poles in the south coming through. This particular image was taken during the southern winter. Um, this is not a living world. Now, what was it that Lowell was seeing? Well, we really don't have a good idea why he was so convinced he could see these repeated patterns of canals on Mars. No one else seemed to see them. So were they all in his head? Well, that's what people thought for a long time. Maybe Percival was just kind of crazy. But it turns out that probably what was happening was he was using his telescopes at unusually high magnification. He was staring intently at the bright disk of Mars, especially at opposition for long periods of time. And if you've ever stared at a bright light bulb for a long period of time and then you blink your eyes away, you'll notice you see a little image at the back of your eye with all the patterning of veins on the retina. And so one of the ideas that's been floated is, in fact, because of the way in which he was so intently staring at Mars, he was, in fact, seeing the patterning of his own retina imprinted over the image by his brain <laughs> and the optical illusion thereon. And that's why only he saw that pattern, because the pattern of veins in your retina is as unique as your fingerprint. But this is what Mars really looks like as seen from spacecraft. Mars has two moons. They're very small. There's not too much to say about them. Their names are Phobos and Deimos, named for the two of the traditional uh, companions of the god of war, Mars. Phobos, fear, like phobia, and Deimos, panic. These are the obvious uh, accompaniments for, the, for, the, for war. These are very heavily cratered, very old surfaces here. They look like, in fact, they have spectrally the compositions of main belt asteroids. And the idea is that these are probably captured main belt asteroids, which have then been tidally locked into circular orbits. The orbits are actually fairly close to the planet Mars. Here's the orbit of Phob... Did I get this wrong? No, I got this right. Whew. Had a problem there for a second. The orbit of Phobos here is on the inside. It's got a 7.6-hour period, so it goes around quite quick. Deimos is on a much further out orbit. goes around in about 30 hours. So you would see two moons rising in their various um, times up and above, but they're very, very tiny moons. And they were just visible. They were only discovered in the 19th century. They were very difficult to see. There was an interesting story behind these, um, historically. Um, if any of you have read um, shoot, why am I Jonathan Swift, who wrote Gulliver's Travels, in Jonathan Swift's writing, one of, the, uh, one of the stories in there had Swift saying that Mars had two moons. Now, how could Swift possibly have known that Mars had two moons? It would be almost two centuries before they were actually discovered by Asaph Hall. Well, it turns out that why Swift thought that Mars had two moons was back 
But this goes back to Galileo. Galileo was making his observations with his telescope of the planet Saturn, and he saw Saturn's rings, but his telescope was of such poor quality, it looked like Saturn had two gigantic moons just touching either side of the body of the planet. He wrote a letter to Johannes Kepler about this, describing this discovery to him. He was, he was corresponding with Kepler at the time. But in those days, because you couldn't trust the mail, you wrote in code. And so Kepler, so Galileo had written he had seen two moons of Saturn. Kepler mistranslated it to be two moons of Mars, and it made it into one of Kepler's writings. It was later Kepler's writings that were read by Jonathan Swift, and then ended up in Gulliver's Travels, The Two Moons of Mars. It sounds like a wonderful prediction. It's a total accident that Mars actually does have two moons, but they're way smaller and would have been invisible to the telescopes available up to the 19th century. Okay, that's enough silly stories. Mars has been a subject of a tremendous amount of spacecraft activity ever since the 1960s with the very first spacecraft, Mariner 4, that went flying by in the late 1960s and returned pictures of Mars showing it to be a cratered desert world. Since then, we've returned to Mars so many times, I've personally lost count of all the spacecraft. The Viking landers, Viking 1 and Viking 2, were the first two successful soft landings on the planet in 1976. They returned the first, they did the first sample, direct sampling of the, of the soil of Mars, and they contained experiments to sample the soil to look for the signs of life, to look for biological activity. That data has largely came up negative, but that hasn't stopped people from looking. Since then, Mars has been a subject of intensive observation. Now, instead of using landers, we also have dedicated, uh, dedicated orbiters. Here's the Mars Global Surveyor, which turned off just a couple of years ago. And the first of the robotic probes that actually could drive around on the surface and move up to rocks with their small geologic test facilities. This is the Sojourner probe, which was so famous a few years ago. More recently, the much more sophisticated probes have begun to move into Mars. The Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter is providing images of un unprecedented clarity of the surface of Mars, mapping its entire surface down to the level of being able to see large boulders. In fact, the level of accuracy of Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter is that it can see from space the Mars Exploration Rovers on the surface. There are two Mars Exploration Rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, that landed on opposite sides of the planets near the equatorial plains. These two have been, have been exploring craters and rocks formations over the last two and a half years. They've been remarkably successful. They're solar powered. They've survived far longer than their rated lifetime. And they are the spacecraft, they are the two robotic stations that have returned the most information, especially bearing on the possible presence of water on Mars. More recently, the Mars Express Orbiter, flown by the Europeans, has gone into orbit. It's proceeding to do a lot of radar mapping. In fact, the Mars Orbiter has a ground-penetrating radar, which is providing the first evidence we've seen so far of the possibility of ices below the Martian soil, rather than being up on the surface. And finally, just in the last few months, the Mars Phoenix mission has been launched. Phoenix is heading up towards the north polar regions of Mars into the, into the Martian Arctic, and its job is actually to drill into the ground for about a meter or so and actually do deep sampling as well as a series of initial biological tests. It's not a full-up biological and geologic research station. It's a, it's a standalone system, not a rover. And it's going to be a pathfinder for the next generation of large rovers. And eventually, the amount of space exploration on Mars is getting to the point that one of the next missions going out there is actually a communication satellite, which will set up the equivalent of the internet around Mars to give a very fast high-speed data link between Mars and the Earth. 
And perhaps one day, I don't know if I'm going to live to see it, maybe you or your kids will live to see it, there's a possibility of human exploration of Mars. That's certainly been talked about. Well, what, can those, what, what do those robotic spacecraft tell us now, and what can future, future men and women walking on the moon possibly see? Well, the first thing about Mars is that it does have an atmosphere. Its composition is surprisingly familiar. It's about 95% carbon dioxide, 2.7% nitrogen, 1.6% oxygen, and traces of water vapor. This looks a lot like the, the atmosphere of Venus in composition, except for the water vapor part. It's pretty dry. It's really bone dry. But again, we don't see nitrogen as the dominant element, as we do on the Earth, nor do we see oxygen at all. There's no free oxygen, no molecular oxygen on Mars to speak of, unlike the case of the Earth. It's a very, very thin atmosphere, unlike Mars, which had a hot, heavy atmosphere that was 90 times the atmospheric pressure of the Earth. Mars' atmospheric pressure is 0.7%. It's equivalent to the, the pressure that you would experience if you went up in altitude by 30 kilometers above the surface of the Earth. So where Venus was like being a kilometer below the oceans, Mars is like being 30 kilometers up in the air. That's well on your way into the stratosphere. As a consequence, oops, as a consequence, Mars is very, very cold, very dry, very thin. There's nothing there to breathe. Now, what's nice about this picture here is this is a very nice picture taken by the Viking orbiters. You can see these layers here in the upper atmosphere. Those are suspended dust particles. One of the things about Mars's atmosphere is it does harbor relatively active weather, not active in an Earth sense, but there are winds, there are clouds. There's no precipitation that we've ever seen, at least not rain or snow or anything like that. But there certainly is particulate matter and occasional large dust storms leads to the suspended material in the upper atmosphere. So the sky of Mars is actually kind of a pink color as a consequence of all the suspended iron oxide dust. The red color of Mars comes primarily from rust, from oxidized iron on the surface. Now the evolution of Mars' atmosphere is of considerable interest to us. It may have been, if we go back about four billion years after the first formation of the solar system, we expect that the primordial atmosphere of Mars was very much like the primordial atmosphere of the Earth and Venus. In fact, the composition of Mars is so close to that of Venus, it's a good bet. However, Venus's hot, heavy atmosphere is still hot and heavy. It had a runaway greenhouse effect and ran away, as we saw yesterday. The Earth has a warm, moist, relatively light atmosphere. Most of the carbon dioxide is locked up in crustal rocks, and the water vapor is falling out into the oceans. But Mars should have been warm enough three billion years ago to harbor liquid water. In fact, it should have been warm enough to do this up to even perhaps even two billion years ago. So where did all the CO2 go? Why doesn't Mars have a hot, or at least a heavy, atmosphere? Well, part of the answer was, if Mars had liquid water during the first billion years, that same water chemistry that went to work on the Earth, whereby water takes carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and locks it up into carbonaceous rocks, probably occurred on Mars as well. So some large fraction, but not all of the CO2, actually got locked up on Mars into crustal rocks. However, as Mars cooled, it lost its greenhouse effect. It was just too far from the sun for water to stay liquid for very long. So as carbon dioxide is slowly getting taken out of the atmosphere, it was slowly taking off its greenhouse blanket that was keeping it warm enough for liquid water. Eventually, the temperature dropped to the point that the water simply froze out of the atmosphere and froze into the subsoil. So Mars basically turned into a ball of permafrost. Or that's kind of an exaggeration, but basically the water went into permafrost. 
It never really formed oceans. They didn't freeze over into ice caps. It just simply froze out. The remaining carbon dioxide and nitrogen was still pretty heavy, but another factor came into play. As Mars was much smaller than the Earth, its interior cooled off more rapidly. As it cooled off more rapidly, it solidified very quickly. When it quickly solidified, whatever magnetic field it had shut down. That magnetic field serves to shield Mars, or like our magnetic field shields the Earth, from cosmic rays and from the solar wind. And in this case, because this magnetic field shut down, it lost the solar windshield, and because the gravity on Mars was so low, the solar wind was able to blow away the upper portions of Mars' atmosphere, and Mars was having a hard time hanging on to what little it could. So a lot of the carbon dioxide and nitrogen actually escapes from the low gravity of Mars. So Mars is barely able to cling to what atmosphere it's got. You run this for a couple billion years, and even though you may have started out hot, warm, and moist, like Venus and the Earth, you will end up on Mars with a very thin, very cold, dry, dominantly carbon dioxide and nitrogen atmosphere. Again, it's two factors come into play. One is it's too cold for liquid water. So whatever liquid water chemistry you have, you shut down right away because the water just simply froze out of the atmosphere. And the second, because Mars is small, its gravity is weak, and so it wasn't able to hang on to its atmosphere as well as the Earth or Venus, and so it actually lost a substantial amount of it to, the, to outer space. And that's why Mars is cold, dry, and has a thin carbon dioxide atmosphere today. But although it is a thin atmosphere, like 30 kilometers up in altitude, it still has active weather. The daytime temperature is about 244 Kelvin. That's about minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit max. So this is, this is the high. The sweltering summer on Mars is 20 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. The nighttime temperatures in winter can get down to a crushing minus 123 degrees Fahrenheit minimum. That's cold enough for carbon dioxide to begin to snow out of the atmosphere as dry ice. You actually get a sort of a, a light dry frost occurs on the surface of Mars. However, there is enough solar heating and there is enough circulation to actually begin to drive substantial winds. Wind speeds have been clocked by all the landers who have carried weather stations with them. They've clocked winds from very light breezes up to 11 miles an hour all the way up to about 30 mile an hour winds. And I look at that number and that 30 kilometers per hour to 31, that doesn't look right. Oh well, I can't do math either on this one. So anyway, but that's pretty stiff breeze. Sufficiently stiff breeze that you can actually see wind-borne erosion and wind-caused erosion features on the surface of Mars. For example, here's a nice strip of, of images taken from one of the Mars orbiters showing a general wind flow pattern. There's very, very large-scale winds, and they tend to run seasonally. And as a consequence, you get these sort of planet-wide windstorms going on. And here you can see the downstream wakes from some of these winds downstream of all these various craters. So we see a lot of presence of what are referred to as aeolian processes at work on Mars. It's wind-borne ero wind erosion. Sometimes these storms can actually get so big they cover the entire planet. We also can see a little bit of light weather. There's very, very high, thin frozen water vapor and carbon dioxide clouds, and there is sometimes fog and frost. Sometimes on really cold mornings in the wintertime, in some of the craters, you actually see a light fog filling in the craters that dissipates as the sun comes up. So Mars actually has some pretty interesting weather. Sometimes the weather can be, however, not disinteresting, but downright violent, at least even by Mars standards. Here's a picture of two pictures of Mars taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. 
This one on the left here was taken on June 26th of 2001 and shows now a pretty typical view of Mars. There's some high clouds up here over the poles. You can see them as the light fluff here. There's, this is close to southern winter, so the southern pole is in sunlight. And just starting to come into northern spring, so the, the pole is starting to come in here. And then a few months later in September 4th, the entire planet is occluded by a planet-wide dust storm, which is kicked up because of the increasing uh, seasons here. We're going from northern spring into northern winter. As you do that, you begin to melt carbon dioxide. You have, sorry, not melt, sublimate carbon dioxide on the northern pole while you're beginning to freeze out carbon dioxide at the southern pole. And that sets up a gigantic north-south flow of air. And in this particular case, all the conditions were right to cause a, a planet-wide dust storm that completely wiped out our view of the, of the planet for a few months. These particular storms are very worrisome. There was a recent one last year that was causing a lot of trouble with the Mars rovers on the surface because the dust was settling on their solar panels and they couldn't actually keep themselves warm enough. And there was a worry they'd get so cold that they'd basically shut down and you could never turn them back on again. Because, let's face it, Mars is pretty cold. It's a harsh environment to build robotic spacecraft. So what the engineers at JPL did was to put the spacecraft into a low-power standby and then cross their fingers and hope for the best. And the good news is when the dust storm settled, when they came up, there wasn't as much crud on the solar panels as they had, had feared. And in fact, the, the spacecraft had both come up back up to power and they're back in operation. This, this has happened a couple of times. People watch the dust storms year after year on Mars. One of the early Mars probes that was a flyby mission, Mariner 7 or Mariner 9, so here's a very expensive space probe. It's only going to spend a couple days around Mars getting those beautiful close-up pictures. It was carrying a great brand new high-resolution video camera. When it came by Mars, it was completely covered in a dust storm and the, data, the mission got zip for pictures of the surface. Working, in, working with spacecraft is just a bad way to go. <laughs> you know, it's really great data when it works, but when things go bad, all you can do is just watch it go bad. There's nothing you can do. You can't run up there and just say, oh, stop, come back. Nope, nope, it's on a ballistic trajectory, it's gone. Well, what these spacecraft, however, most of them have succeeded. And of course, by putting them in orbit, we can get around these cycles of weather and so get long-term monitoring. We've also been able to get very, very high-resolution images. We've been able to bounce radar off the surface to get detailed altimetry. And what's revealed is as follows. The terrain of Mars consists primarily of cratered highlands. This is old, very heavily cratered surface. Again, it's dominated by impact craters. And it's the primary form of terrain on the southern hemisphere of Mars. The craters that we see in the cratered highlands show a great deal of signs of wind erosion, as I mentioned before. They've actually been buffeted and sanded down by windstorms over many, many, many millennia. They're crossed by extremely deep valley networks. So there has been some active tectonism on Mars, not recently, but certainly in the distant past, as the crust has basically rifted and crinkled. We also see some smooth areas between these craters where the craters have been erased. And these areas appear to be, and in fact is now confirmed by some of the spacecraft data, are actually vast lava plains where lava flows erupted, flowed between the larger craters, and erased some of the older, smaller craters. Outside of the highlands, there are these very, very large, vast plains that cover most of the northern hemisphere of Mars. These plains are kind of analogous to ocean floor structures on, the, on, say, Earth, or the low-lying rolling plains of Venus, whereas the highlands, again, would be more like the continents, or on Venus, the highlands. But they're not at the contrast in altitude between highlands and plain is not as abrupt as it is on the Earth. 
These are primarily found, as I said, on the northern hemisphere. This particular region is very, very lightly cratered. This is actually a very, very young set of terrains. So there's a very strong age contrast between the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere of Mars. In fact, the youngest of these structures is the so-called Tharsis Plain, which may be only 500 million years old. And in fact, the Tharsis Plain not only is some of the youngest terrain on Mars, but it's also one of the places on Mars where we find the most and most evidence of active volcanism. In fact, the remaining shield volcanoes are found primarily, one of the biggest concentrations is in the so-called Tharsis Plain. Here's a picture of Mars showing one of these altimetry maps. This is from the Mars, Mars Orbital Laser Altimeter, the MOLA, MOLA mission. The red, the red color in they're using here is red is highlands, blue is for the lowlands. So again, it's that kind of color scheme which blue makes you think of ocean basins. It's very common uh, to use on these terrain maps. You can see this very, very large impact crater formation here down in the southern highlands, these very large basins. And then here's an interesting place. Here's a crack that runs all the way across. It's a gigantic rift valley. And then there are these very high places here. In fact, these are very high volcanoes. This is the section of very young terrain here on the Tharsis Plain is right here. But again, the contrast is very strong. Heavily cratered, high-altitude highlands, but all the low-lying regions are, in fact, very lightly cratered and concentrated primarily in the northern hemisphere of the planet. Here's an example of what, what those planes looks like up close and personal. This is a part of a panorama shot by the, the uh, Spirit rover on the surface of Mars. It was actually in this, in, down in Gusev Crater, which is one of these gigantic craters. You can see it. It looks... This, this particular terrain reminds me a lot of the high Atacama Desert of Chile, or one of the really dry, high deserts. Except this is even more dry and high and nasty. These are mostly volcanic rocks around. You can see sand filling in some of the craters. There are sand dunes. The spacecraft leaves tracks all over the, the sand shifts all over the place. But these are the long rolling plains, a few distant mountains off in the distance. And again, you get that slightly pink sky that you get on Mars from all the suspended dust particles. Here are the Mars polar caps. The northern and southern polar caps are both, both extremes of the rotation poles of, of Mars. The northern polar cap and the southern polar cap are here both shown around summertime. This actually, this northern polar cap is just coming out of, of uh, northern winter, heading, uh, northern summer, heading into northern fall. So you can see how they've partially melted. They're actually sort of rifts and, and channels in here. And here's the southern polar. Again, they're easiest to see during the, during the summertime. Uh, they pr convinced, con consist primarily of water and carbon dioxide ices strongly mixed with all that red dust that just gets into everything on Mars, as near as we can tell. They shrink in the summer and they grow in the winter. This is probably the largest surface reservoir of water existing on the planet Mars today. And in fact, it's into these regions around the northern Arctic that the Mars Phoenix mission was launched and will be arriving early next year. So this is the place, if you're going to be going to look for water or chemical processes involving water, maybe even the place if you want to find microbial life, this is what people think is one of the places to go looking for it, is you want to look where there's at least some chance of having some water around. In addition to the presence of highlands and lowlands, there is evidence of at least past heavy-duty geologic activity. The largest concentration of this is in this place I refer to as the Tharsis Plain. This contains, among other things, this mountain called Olympus Mons, which is the largest volcano in the solar system. Here it is shown in relief on the side. This little cliff complex around here, this is a gigantic shield volcano. These are volcanoes that grow up over hot spots, just like the island of Hawaii. 
You grow up and you dump stuff out and you just pile up a big pile. The reason why they're called shield volcanoes is looking down upon them, they look like an old-fashioned warrior shield in terms of their shape. They're kind of that round, classic, iconic cone shape. The difference with this one is a lot of the shield volcanoes we see on the Earth have been formed in chains because of the motion of the Pacific Plate, for example, in the case of Hawaii. So you get chains of shield volcanoes. Big Island of Hawaii is one massive shield volcano, but it's nowhere near the size of Olympus Mons. Olympus Mons is 24 kilometers high. Remember, the traditional top of the troposphere is 10 kilometers up. And this is Mars, not the Earth. The base, across the base here where this high cliff scarp is, is 600 kilometers. This volcano basically would sit entirely on top of the state of Nebraska. These high cliffs here are a few kilometers high. So this is an immense, immense volcano. Here's a section of the, uh, of the caldera up at the main center here. So we're zooming in on this portion here at the top. This is the main caldera. We get an idea of the age of the volcano from the fact that there are impact craters both on the slope and in the caldera proper. Using that impact crater information, the best estimates is the last time that Olympus Mons was an active erupting volcano was about 300 million years ago. Now what's notable about all the volcanoes on Mars is how unbelievably big they are for the planet. They're much, much bigger than the volcanoes we see on the Earth. And the reason is that they are hotspot volcanoes, but they are stationary hotspots. You're simply forming one gigantic volcano in place, just pile upon pile upon pile. You're never sliding laterally to one side to make a chain. So we see shield volcanoes on the Earth, shield volcanoes on Mars. But the big difference is the Mars shield volcanoes are huge because it's all due to stationary tectonism, stationary hotspots. The other terrain feature of Mars, and this is the one that really gets people excited, are these channels and canyons. There are two of these that are, are exciting some interest. The first of these is that large crack we saw in the, in the Mola terrain map. That was the Valles Marineris, the, Mar the Mariner Valley. It was discovered by, at first by the Mariner 4 spacecraft, which did the first robotic flyby of Mars in the, in the late 60s. This is a gigantic canyon. But unlike, it's often called the Grand Canyon of Mars, but there the, the, uh, the similarities end. Unlike the Grand Canyon, this was not carved by water. This is actually caused by the crust pulling apart and faulting. It's an example of what's called a rift valley. It's actually caused by a rend in the crust as the crust cools around the, around the planet. Its size is also, like all the geologic features on Mars, they're just kind of outsized in some way because of this lack of lateral processing continually breaking things up. Things just form in place and just plain get big cumulatively. The Valles Marineris is 4,000 kilometers long, 2 to 7 kilometers deep, and 600 kilometers wide at its widest portion. 4,000 kilometers is long enough that it would stretch from New York to Los Angeles and be at a depth of 2 to 7 kilometers. To get in your mind the idea of 2 to 7 kilometers, take Columbus, Ohio within the beltway, turn it on its side, and dig a trench that deep. That's 2 to 7, kilo that's seven kilometers depth. So this, this thing is huge, and it's deep. However, it's formed by faulting. It wasn't formed by water erosion. It was formed by the crust simply pulling apart. But there are canyons, however, on Mars which are not due to, thrust due, due to this crustal faulting. They're actually due to flood, floodplains and flood channels due to rapid flows of liquid material, probably liquid water. They're very, very deep channels, and we see broad 
chaotic floodplains. But one of the things that stands out, again, is what we see is evidence of very, very rapid, sudden, catastrophic flows of water. Not the slow, meandering, steady state flows that you get, for example, from, say, the flow channel of the Mississippi River or, or the Amazon Basin or someplace like that. What we see is massive, dramatic floods that tore the terrain up and then the water just went away. The only place, there are a couple places like that on the Earth. A good example are the sudden uh, glacial floodplains. If any of you have ever been up in the, uh, the Badlands or the Scablands up in the uh, western United States, the Scablands up there were caused by the collapse of Glacial Lake Missoula. It's up in Montana, which flooded an entire plain so chaotically that it ripped the terrain up, but then the water went away. We see those same kinds of torn up Scabland kinds of terrains on Mars where you see not just simply a simple meandering flow, but a catastrophic flood that tosses boulders and digs deep channels, and then vanishes just as quickly as it seems to appear. Here's some pictures to sort of back that up. This is the Valles Marineris. Again, you can see the size of this rift valley compared to the disk of Mars. So this is an immense crack in the surface. And again, it's two to seven kilometers deep, 600 kilometers wide, more than 4,000 kilometers in length. Here's an example of one of these uh, violent floods that, that is seen. This is, a, this is a particular flood plain here called the Ravi Vallis. Here you can see the beginning of the flood is that the flood sort of originated here, flows outwards, and you can actually see where it's erased whole craters, and it's left a tremendous amount of jumbled terrain downstream, but then it's just simply gone away. So this flood occurred very rapidly, jumbled up the terrain downstream of it, and then just stopped. And the question is why? Why were these sudden rapid floods of water? Well, certainly the results from the Mars orbiters, which have mapped the surface in great detail, have found a number of evidences of liquid water, at least in Mars's past. Just the examples I've shown before, places like the Ravi Vallis are very deep, recent, rapid floods of water, which carved out tremendous gully systems and then vanished. We also see, and we're starting to see in the more high-resolution mappers, deep layered terrains, like you actually are carving them down layer by layer, like we see in the Grand Canyon. Now, for a long time, we thought we should be seeing these kinds of layered terrains and sedimentary terrains, but the problem really was one of technology. We simply couldn't see Mars clear enough, in detail enough, to be able to see terrain features that small. It's only been this new generation with carrying these of spacecraft carrying these very high-resolution digital cameras and having the rovers on the ground to look right up at it that we're now beginning to see the kinds of sedimentary layered terrains that are the sign not simply of catastrophic floods but of long-term standing water flows. And that's been really exciting. In particular, when you can get right up close to some of these terrains with the rovers, what we're seeing are layered sedimentary rock rock that was laid down layer after layer of material precipitating out of standing water. That's the important phrase, standing water. Furthermore, if you look in detail at some of these sedimentary patterns, you see what's called riprap. If you ever look at the bottom of a river, you no know, river bottoms aren't smooth. The sand in them sort of gets these sort of wavy patterns in them. That's called riprapping. That's a sign of water flow and turbulent water flow over a, over a sandy surface. We see riprap frozen into the ground where the water has gone away but left the ripples behind. So it's actually a sign of a steady state flow. The most important evidence, however, is finding minerals like hematite. These are hydrated minerals. These are minerals that only form out of precipitation and standing liquid water. A rapid flood, you'd never have time to form hematites because the water would flash, 
be done. But if you had a standing pond of water, even if it was just a water flood, very brief water flood from, say, a comet impact or a volcanic eruption that melted subsurface water and filled a crater, that if the water's standing long enough, you precipitate out salts and you get minerals like hematite. We've also found mineral salts on the ground in Mars that have been analyzed. And again, these are precipitates from liquid water. So that's the real hard evidence that Mars probably had a fairly liquid past. Here's some of these pictures. This is an absolutely spectacular picture of some of these steady state flow channels. You can see the meandering gully here form. This is a very high angle picture, which was taken during a, a Mars afternoon. These kinds of, of running gullies here are just like you see for steady state flows on the Earth. The deserts I grew up in in California, there were these, these gullies and quebradas all over the place. And when I saw this picture, except for the fact of the orange in there, which gave away that it was Mars, this could easily have been a couple of the, the desert canyons up near where I grew up. That's just, but, but these structures are invisible in the older images. Only the new generation spacecraft have been able to reveal them. Just, the, the, the quality of this imaging is just phenomenal. In fact, I'm going to cut the lights completely here for a second so you can get a little clearer look at some of this stuff. These next few images are really quite spectacular. There you can see much better this gully wash complex here. I've been in places in Chile in the California desert that look just like that, except this is Mars. This is perhaps one of the most spectacular of these things. This is called the Ebersvalde Delta. That is a river delta. That is a delta outflow. That's, a, that's an like an alluvial fan. And look at the layering of the terrains here. This is a sedimentary laydown from a steady state water flow. And again, this particular structure was only suggestive in the old photographs, in these high resolution photographs. And I'm showing you just a fraction of the resolution here. You can see layering and flows. If you dried up the Mississippi River Delta, it would look a lot like this in some detail. So what do we got going on here? Well. Here's a close-up from the Mars rovers. Here's the layered sedimentary terrains, again showing these signs of very clear water flows which have been frozen into the rock. This and these water layers here contain salts and they contain hydrated minerals. This is very, very firm evidence for the presence in the past of liquid water. But again, I keep using that word liquid water in the past. That was the wrong light set. Is there life on Mars? There's water. There's heat. Is there life? Okay. So far, if there's liquid water in the past, we know that wherever there's liquid water on the Earth, some form of life, even primitive life, bacterial life has emerged. So far, there is zero evidence of life on Mars today. However, in the last few years, we've uncovered tremendous evidence of standing water in Mars's past. Mars should have been warmer and wetter in the distant past, perhaps as early as a few billion years ago. It didn't seem to take Earth very long once it settled down to go to simple single cellular life. So people still hold out the possibility that we might still find life on Mars, either in fossil form or maybe even today. One possibility is it's hiding deep underground. A deep underground, it might be warm enough for liquid water to actually begin to form, and it would sh the ground would shield those bacteria from ultraviolet radiation from the sun. We don't know the answer to this. This is all purely speculation at this point, but we think all the pieces are in place. And the next decade or so of Mars exploration, primarily with robots, one of the key goals of that work is to try to find the chemical evidence and direct evidence of either life in the present or fossil life in the past. 
It's an unanswered question, and an answer I, question I hope we will begin to get answers for in the next few years. Okay, have a good weekend, and I'll see you all on Monday.